0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Father, please be with us this morning, because I know you are. As we study your word, as we open your scriptures, Lord, I pray that you would illuminate them, that we would see the worth of Jesus, how valuable he is. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So last week, uh, we talked about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. With one phrase, he took what was dead, and he made him alive. Lazarus, come out. And that's a picture of the gospel message, that God makes dead things alive. He gives us, who are spiritually dead, a new life. And he he offers it to all who will believe. However, with this offering this offering of life there often comes division among people we see that time and time again in John's gospel there are those who believe and those who don't some hate the fact that God offers life they hate the fact that Jesus is the light they love the stench of death they love death and sin but most of all they just simply hate God we see this most in the angry atheist on the on the internet If you ever want to see some hate in vitriol, just visit YouTube and search out Atheist and you will see it on full display. It's interesting that they hate something that they don't believe in. And they hate him so much. But not only do the Atheist hate Jesus, but oftentimes the super-religious hate Jesus too. They think they love God. They think that they're devoted to God. But really they're just devoted to their religious superiority. Really they just love their own self-righteousness. They love the admiration and the praise that that they get for being good people. But then on the other hand, the other side of the division, there are those who actually show love and devotion for Jesus. They show love and devotion towards a God who gives life. They are grateful. They are willing to give good gifts. They are willing to value God for who He is and what He has done. How can people look at the same person, the same teachings, and come up with different beliefs about Him? it all comes down to what they value how they value jesus is jesus worthy what is jesus worth for the atheist and for the self righteous it is only based on what he can do or what they believe he can do for the atheist he thinks that jesus they think that jesus is a fairy tale therefore he can't do anything so he's of little value he's of little worth For the self-righteous and the religious, they value Jesus simply because of what he can do for them. For those who are truly devoted to him, they see his value for who he is. In the stories that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to discover two groups of people and how they demonstrate how they value Jesus. One group is going to spare no expense to try to trap and kill him. The other is going to spare no expense when it comes to worshiping him. So as we look at the scriptures this morning... I want you to ask yourself, do you believe that Jesus is worthy of worship? What do you see Jesus' is worth as? Do you love Jesus? And if not, why? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what you have to say to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse, so we're going to be in John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. Says this, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Remember, we're right on the heels of the resurrection of Lazarus. We begin he rose Lazarus from the dead, but some people believed in Jesus. And some people went to the Pharisees and they tattled on Jesus. Remember, Jesus didn't perform this miracle in Or this last sign in and around a big crowd. It was an intimate setting with some of the disciples, Mary, Martha, and some of those who came to mourn Lazarus' death. Now their faith was built, those who believed, their faith was built on what they witnessed. Not on what Jesus had taught. But if they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, because of what he did. Seeing miracles performed is not a bad place to start for belief in God. In fact, there's a lot of miracles that we've seen in this congregation over the past year and a half. But belief in the miracles of God is not the finish line. God does miracles every day. He does miraculous things every day. Every day that a sinner repents and gives their life to Jesus, that's a miracle. Every day that the sun rises and we take a deep breath, that's a miracle. There there are miracles in the extreme and there are miracles in the mundane. The fact that God doesn't just wipe us all out and start over is an absolute miracle. But we don't just believe in God because of his miracles, because of what he does. We can't just value him because of what he can do. We can't. We must value him for who he is. Now there are those who believe in him after he raises Lazarus from the dead. And I'm convinced that those who believe after the raising of Lazarus are true believers. And their faith continues to grow. You may be asking me why I believe that. The text doesn't tell us that they continued in belief, that they endured to the end. Remember what I said earlier. The whole section that we're going to look at this morning is about two groups of people. It's a case study in the different responses to Jesus. And these that believe are contrasted with those who go and report to the Pharisees, the religious leaders about Jesus. John is being very deliberate here about the many who believed and the some that didn't. Those who approached the religious leaders tell them what they witnessed. And it led the religious leaders to, to gather together and to confer, to have a conference about what they were going to do. So we see this in John 11:47. So the chief priest and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are they going to do? We get to see here that the Sanhedrin gathers together and they start asking about Jesus. And it's been a while since we've talked about the Sanhedrin back in the middle of the book of Acts when I was preaching through that. The the Sanhedrin are kind of like the Jewish law enforcement. One commentator put it this way, the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was generally composed of 70 of the leading priests who were mostly Sadducees and the revered rabbinic scribes who were mostly Pharisees. With the ruling high priest serving as the 71st member who would Break ties in court. So there were 70 men, religious leaders, scribes, and priests, and then the one high priest there. And they would gather together to decide what Jesus was going to do, what they were going to do with Jesus. They were in charge of enforcing Jewish laws, they were in charge of enforcing Jewish customs, and they valued the scriptures, but they didn't understand them as well as they thought they did. They didn't value Jesus, the Word of God put on flesh. Previously, we were told that these leaders think that Jesus is a deceiver, that he is a false teacher, that he has a demon. And here's the crazy part for me. They just simply refused to believe. They just refused to believe. No matter how much of the evidence was put before them, they just did not want to believe. They even asked the question, what are we going to do in verse 47? What are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? Notice the language that he used. They use the same language that John used in the rest of his gospel, that these are signs, not miracles, signs, signifying they understand that what Jesus has done is pointing to some greater reality, that these signs are pointing to something more significant than just the raising of the dead or the healing of the blind man. And yet they are too blind to see the truth. You see, we need to understand that even the super religious can be lost. They can be devoted to the things of God, but not to God himself. We see that here. We see that they are devoted to the things of God, studying the scriptures, but not to God himself. They're scared. They're worried about what's going to happen if more people start believing in Jesus. What is their chief concern? Well, verse 48 tells us they are afraid that they're going to lose what little freedom they have left, that Rome is going to come in and take over. They thought that the followers of Jesus would stir up trouble and cause them to lose their power that they would lose their influence, and they can't let that happen. You see, they don't care about the truth. They care about their power. They care about their influence. They care about their prestige. That's what being devoted to religious activities, rather than devoted to God, will do to us. And I'm not trying to say that the religious activities are bad. You should read your Bible. You should come to church. You should do good things. But if you are more devoted to those things, If you're more devoted to looking self-righteous than you are to actually loving Jesus, then all of your work is in vain. We are to pursue truth, love in Jesus, rather than a public perception of righteousness. Jesus doesn't want bumper sticker Christians. He wants people who are devoted to him, devoted to loving him and pursuing him. Now the Sanhedrin, they were guilty for looking religious, but not actually pursuing God's truth. Caiaphas, the high priest, stands up and he gives a prophecy. And it's so funny. It's it's ironic, but in verse 49 he says this. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You are not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. This is prophetic irony that John is capturing here in this this story. Caiaphas is the high priest at the time. And as he casts judgment on Jesus He unknowingly preaches the gospel message. Caiaphas suggests that Jesus' death is a good thing because it will allow the nation to stay whole, that it will allow the leaders to stay in power, that it will allow the status quo to continue. So it's to their advantage that they kill Jesus so that things remain normal and that the nation will be saved. It's to their advantage that there is a substitute. Notice, they can't deny what Jesus has done. There is no denying of raising Lazarus from the dead. There is no denying of healing the blind man. There is no denying of the crippled man walking again. They can't deny that. So rather than submit to those, the truth of those signs and those events, they start proclaiming that Jesus needs to die. But much like the other sections of John's Gospel, there's a deeper meaning Another meaning to what Caiaphas says here. Caiaphas cares about keeping power, but about and about things remaining the same. But God was using his words to speak prophetically about what he was actually going to happen, what was actually going to happen. God wasn't interested in the status quo. God wasn't interested in the preservation of power. God was interested in the salvation for people through the sacrifice of Jesus. So in 51 through53 John tells us what Caiaphas's prophecy actually meant. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. We learn here about a biblical doctrine called substitutionary atonement. John tells us that there's something greater going on with Caiaphas' prophecy. What is that something greater? Jesus is not dying just for the nation of Israel, but for all the children of God. Caiaphas' words are not his own, but are given to him through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. An interesting point here is that even the enemies of God can be used as instruments of God to push forth his purposes. So what does substitutionary atonement mean? Was well, the theological and biblical teaching that Jesus died in our place. That his death was a substitute for ours. You see we're enemies of God. And we're on our way to eternal separation from him. Why? Because of our sin. Because of our rebellion. Because of our de- blatant disregard for God's holiness. Even All of the good and moral things that we do stand before God as filthy rags, unable to make us right with God. That's what Paul said in that scripture I I read earlier in Philippians 3, that all of the good is as dung before the Lord. And the penalty for our sin and the penalty for our rebellion is death. So all people in their sin and rebellion deserve death. But God is rich in mercy. He is rich in love. He is rich in grace. He is rich in compassion. So he provides a way for those creatures on the way to death to be restored, to be brought back into relationship with him. And he does this through the sending of his son, Jesus. And Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. He's obedient to the Father, unlike we're able to be. And that obedient and perfect life was placed upon Jesus. And he took his obedience to the cross. And he died in our place. So because of Jesus' death, we can be restored. Jesus was our substitute. Jesus died for us, and now we get the benefits of his perfection. We get to be clothed in what the Bible calls righteousness. What is righteousness? It is simply right standing with God. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can be made right with God. We can be no longer enemies of God, but children of God. And this isn't just for a select few, like Caiaphas expected, but for all who will be children of God, all who will trust and obey and follow Jesus. John tells us at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus came to make people children of God. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, he says this, but all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came to make people children of God. And The reality is is that you can be a child of God. You can receive forgiveness. You can be made right with God all because of Jesus. Not because of anything that you can do, but because of what Jesus did. We just need to receive him and believe in him You see, there's value in Jesus' death in the eyes of God because it was the only perfect sacrifice that could make many sons and daughters of God. You see, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin saw value in Jesus' death because that would mean that they would remain in power, that they would hold on to their influence. So from that moment forward, they continued to hunt Jesus down to put an end to the threat that they believe existed. But their real value in Jesus' death was that he could make many to be sons and daughters of God. Now Caiaphas and his friends continue to plot Jesus' death, and so Jesus hears about it, and he goes back into Ephraim. He, he stops being where he is now. And then in verse 55 of John chapter 11, it says this, Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up from Jerusalem to the country to purify themselves before the Passover, they were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report he should report it so that they could have him arrested. So we learn that the Passover is near. Passover. And with the Passover happening in Jerusalem, Jewish people from all around the nation would come into Jerusalem. In fact, we're told that the population of Jerusalem will go from 70,000 people to 250,000 people for the Passover. But let's not overlook the significance of the Passover. Right? The Passover was a celebration of Israel as a nation, the deliverance of the Israelites from the slavery of Egypt. In fact, the Passover is the Old Testament picture uh, and Old Testament picture of substitutionary atonement. As a quick refresher, the Passover celebrated protection from the final plague in Egypt. And the plagues were happening because of Pharaoh's disobedience. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn. But God provided a way for his people to be protected. He had them sacrifice the lamb and spread the blood on the doorframe. So that night, as the angel of death would fly through Egypt, they, he would pass over the families that were covered in the blood, the families that had obeyed God, they would be protected from death. And for generations after that happened in Egypt, Jewish people celebrated deliverance. And in fact, today, people still celebrate the Passover. They celebrate the rescue. They celebrate the salvation of God in Egypt. In this Passover, John tells us about the third and final Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is a picture that John has been painting since the beginning of his gospel, that Jesus is the greater Passover, that Jesus is the true and perfect substitute. Or as John the Baptist proclaims in, in uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, look, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. The Passover Lamb was simply a sign pointing to our need for a substitute, one who would stand in the gap and take away our sin. One who would protect us from death. One who would cleanse us from our sin. Jesus is worthy of being celebrated because he is that Passover lamb. He is worthy of being worshipped. He is worthy because he is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And we can see that on this side of the cross. On this side of the resurrection. But what were the people thinking before Jesus actually went to the cross? What were these Jewish people thinking in Jerusalem before that Passover? There's a buzz in Jerusalem. Many have heard about Jesus. Many have probably had friends and family that have believed in Jesus. They were curious about Jesus. They were looking for Jesus, standing in the temple. They wanted to interact with Jesus, unsure if he was going to come to the festival. Meanwhile, we learn that the chief priest and the Pharisees have told people to report Jesus if they see him. So the people in Jerusalem are faced with a choice. They can either, if they see Jesus, they can report it or they can keep it to themselves. And we're left in a little bit of suspense. That's where that story ends. What's going to happen? Is Jesus going to show up for the Passover? But the next scene we're introduced to, isn't Jesus going to Jerusalem? But Jesus had a dinner party with some of his friends in a little town called Bethany. The same Bethany where Lazarus was raised from the dead. So verse 1 of chapter 12, it says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. The one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner there for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one who was reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed his feet, Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the whole house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't that perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered him, leave her alone. She has kept it for, my, for the day of my burial. We see here a, a priceless anointing. Six days before the Passover, Jesus is enjoying a dinner with his friends. We learn that it's Lazarus and Mary and Martha and some other people. And Martha's around busy, doing the busybody thing that Martha does, and she's serving food. Lazarus is sitting next to Jesus, and then Mary's introduced. And she takes a pound of expensive perfume, and John tells us she pours it on her feet, on his feet. Now there are some who see discrepancies in the retelling of this in each gospel. Matthew and Mark say that the oil was poured on his head, and John says it's poured on his feet. The reality is, is it's probably poured on both, but it was a pound of oil. That's a lot of oil to be poured. So there's enough for his head and his feet, and probably his whole body if he wanted to be. There's a lot of oil that can be used. But the gospel authors are highlighting something different in each one of the gospels. we talked about this before, that they're writing for a specific purpose, right? The anointing of the head in Matthew and Mark is a signal of Jesus as the true king, the true Messiah, the promised Messiah. The anointing of his feet is a picture of Mary's love and devotion in serving Jesus. The immense value she places on Jesus is contrasted against the religious leaders that want to kill Jesus. Now this jar of oil would have been sealed, it would have been a, a completely sealed jar of oil, jar of oil that would have had to been broken to be used. Meaning that the moment that the seal was broken, the value would diminish. Much like driving a new car off the lot. The moment you drive it off the lot it starts to diminish. But without hesitation, Mary broke that bottle, and the whole house was filled with a beautiful fragrance. And when I read that and I was studying it and thinking about it this week, I couldn't help but but laugh a little bit. The whole place smelling like perfume. When I waited tables at the Cheesecake Factory, we, were, uh, we had something similar to this take place, but it wasn't a pleasant smell. So we had these giant jars of Tabasco that we would bring to the tables. And uh, one time, one of my coworkers dropped the Tabasco on the marble floor, and the entire restaurant smelled like Tabasco sauce. And it wasn't a pleasant smell. It smelled like that for like days. But it would happen right next to the front door. So anytime somebody would walk in, they wouldn't smell the beautiful smell of cheesecake or food. They would get that hint of, or that hit of vinegar from Tabasco. But anyway, so it wasn't a pleasant smell. But I think about that when Mary breaks this oil, that the whole house is filled with this beautiful scent. The oil pour, poured out on Jesus would have smelled a lot better than Tabasco. That's for sure. Not only that, but this oil would have been extremely expensive right? John tells us through Judas that this cost would be 300 denarii. That is an average year's wages for a worker. We may look at that number 300 and and we may think, oh, that's not that much. Sure, it's expensive, but hey, it's for Jesus. I want to put it in a little bit of perspective for us. So I did a little bit of research this week. The average annual salary here in Texas is just over $57,000 a year. So if Jesus was here today, We were having a party at my house, and Jesus walked in. And Mary came in. She broke this jar that was worth $57,000. How would you feel? She starts rubbing it on Jesus' feet. Now, remember, Jesus hasn't rose rose from the dead yet. This is before his crucifixion. You might be with Judas at first. I might be with Judas at first. Do you know how many families we could have helped with $57,000? You know how many people we could have fed or supported? How many are hurting or how many are broken with $57,000? But here's the thing. What Mary did was more important than the worth of the bottle. She was demonstrating how much value she placed on Jesus. He was worth more to her than priceless perfume. In fact, I saw one commentator make the argument that this jar of expensive perfume could have been used as a dowry or a payment for marriage. Back in those days, if you were a woman and you wanted to be married, you would have to give something to the groom or the father of the man that you wanted to marry. And this commentator argued that this could have been the dowry to get Mary married. So she could have used that jar to secure her future by marrying a man of means. But instead, she breaks it and anoints Jesus' feet. She's willing to give up her ability to marry a man to wash Jesus' feet with this oil. That is immense value. She saw Jesus as more valuable than her own future. Now Judas, on the other hand, saw value in the oil. Mary saw value in Jesus. They're not the same. Not only that, but John tells us that Judas was a thief. That he really wasn't concerned with helping the poor. He was concerned with lining his own pockets. Judas cared more about the money than he did Jesus. He sold Jesus to the highest bidder. But that's not where it started. It started by stealing just a little bit, a little bit here and a little bit there, and his heart begins to get hardened, and money becomes his God. What Jesus saw as a waste of money, Jesus saw as a blessing. Jesus knew that his time was short, that his hour was about to arrive, and he saw Mary's sacrifice as a symbol. She was anointing him for his death. She was preparing him for his suffering. She was also cherishing the time that she had with him. And that's part of Jesus' rebuke towards Judas. The poor are always going to be around, but he's about to go. Yet Judas didn't see value in Jesus' presence. To Judas, Jesus was simply a means to an end, a profit to profit off of. Here's some time for reflection in the face of Mary and Judas. Judas and Mary are on both ends of extremes. When we look at belief and unbelief in the Gospel of John, they are on both ends. Mary believes and trusts Jesus so much that she is willing to lay it all on the line. Judas lacks belief in Jesus and his mission, and he worries about the money he can steal. So, do you believe, or do you have a lack of belief? What do you find more value in, Jesus or something else? What is the most valuable to you? If Jesus asked you to let go of your job, To let go of that promotion, to let go of your bank account, your aspirations, your desires, your dreams, your ambitions. Do you see Jesus valuable enough to let go of it all? Do you see and know the value and the worth in Jesus? That he's greater than any er earthly thing, that there's nothing better than him. And you may be asking, why is Jesus so valuable? The simple answer is, he's valuable because he is. He is worthy of all praise and all honor and all of our life because he is the God of the universe. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is valuable because of who he is. And you may be thinking, that's all nice, but what does that matter to me? Well, the reality is is that he came and he gave his life for you. He laid it all on the line for you. So you should be thankful for that sacrifice. Because until you see who he is and what he did as the most valuable thing in your life, then you won't be able to let go of what's holding you down. You won't be able to enjoy the presence of the Lord without worrying about something else. Is Jesus the most valuable thing in your life? Do you value or cherish Jesus, or is he simply a means to an end for you? Are you Mary, or are you Judas? Do you follow him around, not truly believing he is the Messiah, the Son of God, because you want to reap his benefits, or are you willing to lay it all on the line for him? Are you ready to pour out your life for him? Are you ready to give up everything to worship him? Do you relate more to Mary or to Judas? And don't try to deceive yourselves when you're asking this question. Reflect on it and think truthfully. Answer truthfully. God already knows the true answer. Because if we're actually honest with ourselves, there are more times when we feel like Judas than we act like Mary. There are things that we don't want Jesus to have. There are things that we hold on to because we value them more than Jesus. If you find that the answer is true to the question that you align more with Judas than with Mary, I want to encourage you that it's not too late to turn around. That You're not too far gone. Jesus wants your worship. He desires your love, and he desires your affection, and he's ready to welcome you and embrace you with open arms. Run to him. He laid it all on the line for you. You can lay it down for him. Verse nine. Then a large crowd of Jews learned that he was there. They came only because of Jesus, but they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. The one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest had decided to kill Lazarus because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Word gets around that Jesus is outside of Jerusalem, that he's in Bethany, and large crowds start to gather around him. Not just to see Jesus, right? You see that. They're not there just to see Jesus, they want to see Lazarus. Are the stories true? Did this man actually die? Was he actually in the grave for four days, and then he was brought back to life? If this is true, then maybe Jesus is who he says he is. It's easier to hear tales and tall tales, but to see Lazarus in the flesh after his death, that would be a sight worth seeing. And because of Lazarus' Lazarus's life, many more were believing in Jesus. Many more were listening to the testimony of Lazarus and trusting in Jesus. And if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, Your testimony is important. Your testimony about how God has saved you and has changed you will have an impact on others. It may not cause everyone to believe, but some might. Lazarus' testimony of being dead and then waking up alive, that's a powerful testimony. Your testimony of being an enemy of God who was opposed to God, didn't want the things of God, and he saved you is an amazing testimony. Use it. But rest assured, not not everyone will believe. And many people may even hate you for your testimony. They may even hate you for loving Jesus. That's what happens to Lazarus. We see this, that the religious leaders hated Jesus so much that they wanted not only to kill Jesus, but also to kill Lazarus. The sinful hatred and their anger dug so deep that they were, not, they were willing to kill not one, but two innocent men. Why? So that they could stay in power. So that their lives wouldn't be upset so that things would stay the same, so that they could save face. Here's the thing about sin. It always leads to more sin. Sin always leads to more sin. It always leads to more destruction. It always has more consequences than we can even imagine. Sin, hatred, anger will always dig deeper than we want it to. It will always stay longer than we want it to. It will always affect more people than we think it will. But the good news is that Jesus came and he can cleanse us of all of our sin. If we call out and we believe in him, our sin will be forgiven. We will no longer be children of wrath and enemies of God, but he will make us children of God. If you've never believed in Jesus, today is that day. He is calling out to you. He wants you to respond. He wants you to turn away from your sin and embrace his forgiveness. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you this. What are you holding on to? What is Jesus asking you to let go of? What can you offer him as an act of worship? And as we partake in the Lord's Supper and sing these last couple of songs, I want you to reflect on what Jesus has done for you. Reflect on your relationship with him. If you have a relationship with him, how can you serve and love and glorify him? And if you don't have a relationship with him, how can you be restored? Through repentance and asking him to forgive you. As I pray, I would like my uh, ushers to come forward and help with the Lord's Supper. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. Lord, I pray that uh, as we reflect on the goodness of who you are, the gift of the celebration, Lord, I pray we would live a life bold. We would live a life that honors and glorifies you. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.